The podcast series about our textbook, Indigenous Education in Australia, Learning and Teaching for Deadly Futures, published by Routledge. This podcast series is hosted by Marnie Shea and Rhonda Oliver, and we are the editors of this book, which is a collection of chapters authored by Indigenous and non-Indigenous educators and researchers on a variety of topics on Indigenous education. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land this podcast is recorded on today, the Yaru peoples and the lands of the people where listeners are tuning in from today. In this podcast series, we explore the chapters with authors providing listeners and readings, readers of the text the opportunity to hear the author's yarn about their chapters and provide further insights about some of the suggested practices and implications of their topics. Today, I'm yarning with Helen McCarthy, who authored the chapter Red Ochre Women, Sisters in Struggle for Educational Reform. Welcome and thank you for sharing your time and knowledge with us for this podcast series. Can you please introduce yourself to the audience, who you are, where you come from? Hello, lovely to be here. Um, I come with, um, I co-authored this chapter with Jacqueline Amagula. Um, so um, when I'm referring to Jacqueline, um, um, Jacqueline has since passed and uh, we've been given permission by her family to uh, use her name. So um, the stories of the Red Ochre women come from Groot Island in the Gulf of Carpentaria. I'm originally from, my, my family is um, from the southeast of Western Australia, so Esperance, the archipelago um, research is my country. And I travelled to the archipelago into Andaliagua country um, in the Gulf of Carpentaria. So the stories that are mostly that our chapter's made up is on Jacqueline's country, Groot Island. And so just to, to confirm for the audience, you're a non-Indigenous researcher. I'm a non-Indigenous researcher. I'm a, I'm a Balanda, Yungamata uh, or Dumagotra um, in Andaliagua. Thanks. Helen, can you please share with your audience your background in Indigenous education? I graduated in, um, I, I went to, to Perth to major in Aboriginal education in um, 1978 and I worked with um, a group of, there was only probably 13 of us and we were at Mount Lawley Teachers College um, and uh, straight away when I started learning about Aboriginal education, it just was really clear that, um, you know, it sort of had picked me. You know, everything, I felt like I'd come home uh, when I was working with that group of students. And most of those students are still in Aboriginal education today. And, and some of those um, authors that are in this book were in that cohort that I met a long, long time ago. So... Um, we understood the importance uh, of making sure that we valued the languages that the kids were coming to the learning environment, valued um, listening and learning and sitting and watching, and that we knew that we weren't to go into communities and teach, but rather teach and learn. And so as a result of um, sort of having the opportunity to go to Arnhem Land meant that I also had the opportunity to meet 
Jackie Amagula, who was just a young AEIO, and that was in 1981. And because we were playing basketball together uh, and we were teaching together, that just um, put us on a trajectory that we were for always talking and sharing. And it didn't matter if we were on the basketball court or out hunting. And we even at one point went to Melbourne and played at Albert Park. We'd be still talking about strategies we could put, put in place so that new white teachers coming onto the island could be, you know, culturally competent and be mindful of um, how to, um, you know, educate the kids in, in ways that they were comfortable learning. Thanks, Helen. And in your chapter, you explored educational reform. Can you tell us uh, some of the main messages that you wanted readers to take from your chapter? It just seemed to us that whenever a program was developed at the ground, at the root level, at the gold face where, where the kids were operating from and, and they, they often owned it and ran with it and we would build these programs and they'd become really um, co- you know, popular and other, pe- other schools would hear about them and then we could transfer these programs whenever they were going really well somehow or another you know whether the education department pulled funding or there was a um, an election and another political party came into play there was always something that stopped really good things happening and and Jacqueline sort of got pretty tired of of setting up fantastic things community-owned community-led um, strength-based programs and then they were shut down and she was a graduate from a place called Dutma College which was set up uh, as a result of Aboriginal people coming together in Arnhem Land to say we want a place where our children can learn our way and so Jacqueline went to Dutma College and graduated and she was also you know alumni was also um, Dr. Unipingu, and he he um, he actually was you know driving this force about recognizing that there was a real special need to document Yungu Gama ways of knowing, indigenous ways of knowing. So Dutma was really exciting, and and when I arrived on Groot Island, Dutma had been closed down, like they thought that. That you know, it was opened uh, in 1972 by Prime Minister William McMahon. Um, everyone thought that the program was being built up, and the government said, "You know, we're going to come in and do some rebuild." But they abruptly, just out of the blue, shut it down when all the teachers left that, at the August holidays. So as the white teachers left, the school got shut down. There was no negotiation, and you know, people were distraught. But there was nothing no one could do about it. And then the bilingual program got set up and kids were speaking, you know, working in a bilingual con- context and, and there was this parity of esteem for their vernacular and, and, the, and it was, you know, it was really evident and the, every school had a literacy centre. So there was this amazing production. Children were authors, children were illustrators and everywhere you went, there was both English and the vernacular. And then there was a change of government and all of a sudden, you know, the bilingual program got shut down. And 
there were, even though there was a huge outroar, you know, people right across the Northern Territory, especially Christine Nichols, was saying things like, you know, there is nothing that you can say that proves that bilingual education hasn't worked. And it's been difficult. So Jackie has been constantly this voice for her people and she has refused to shut up. And slowly by slowly, people have started to hear her. She, she went from an AEIO to a fully qualified teacher from Bachelor College. She stepped into the principal role. Her family have supported her because they're all leaders and innovative. Um, you know, they have great vision for their, for their, for their peoples. And now finally, her younger brother has stepped up and has become part of a Groot Island, um, New Archipelago, education framework that it that value you know that actually starts with Andiliagua and the kids are building Andiliagua programs and and that's you know the the point of our story has been irrespective of the struggle you just can't give up because these kids are so precious and they they are so um they just need the opportunity to be able to operate uh, in in a world that, or in worlds, in, bo- in all worlds. And having a school now on Groot Island, um, as well as like the Tiwi model that we refer to in our book as well, shows that finally, after all this time, Aboriginal communities are taking and being given the capacity to be leaders and owners of their own um, futures. So if you were to make any suggestions or recommendations about educational reform into the future, what would your main points be about educational reform? Well, we've said that um, it's, it's clear that retention in schools that are operating on either a bilingual program or um, schools, and Jack, this was Jacqueline's life work, uh, about preparing um, non-Aboriginal teachers. The greatest reform needs to be preparing non-Aboriginal teachers if they're coming into, into Aboriginal community schools. Now, part of the Australian cross-curricular priorities, it's a good start because, you know, all non-Aboriginal teachers have to be doing units in, you know, Indigenous, uh, Indigenous Australian cultural studies. Um, and so that the, their understanding and their, their being, they're more mindful of, um, what they really need to do, that they're, they're there to, you know, be guides rather than, um, you know, imposing a way of learning, you know, and a, you know, acknowledging Aboriginal ways of knowing are not necessarily the best at all times, you know, there's, there's an opportunity for Aboriginal ways of knowing and um, children to be able to learn in the way that they, you know, it's it's how they best learn and it gives them the best chance of being able to grow and and become young adults who can make really informed decisions about how they want to see their community go forward, just like Tomija Amagula was able to do Jackie's younger brother. And you can see the difference the, in the increased 
health conditions, the the lower numbers of um, mortality and higher life expectancy and um, different, you know, a decrease in things like smoking-related sicknesses and cancer. You know, it's all about being able to take ownership of valuing bush medicine as well as, you know, just um, maintaining country as well. Thanks, Helen. And as we finish, for you in reimagining a better future for Indigenous education, what is your vision for excellence in this area? Well, my vision for excellence comes from the fact that I'm actually working in a program that's teaching on country. So Aboriginal Aboriginal Islander education officers are staying on country to become qualified, to become fully graduated teachers in their own rights, to be able to build schools and communities, valuing the children who come to these schools because they're their greatest natural asset. So I think that the way that we can build more schools with Aboriginal teachers in it means that there's going to be so many more Aboriginal kids getting through and mostly importantly is that white kids get to have a chance to have Aboriginal teachers and it will just be such an amazing thing to see, you know, a, a new a new, a new, new world, you know, the world spinning right. That's a line out of Yurtu um, Yindi, you know, the world spinning right. It's it's going to happen. We'll be a suck. We'll be such a better peoples when we've got Aboriginal teachers as a part of um, our our children's lives. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Helen McCarthy. My pleasure. Thanks.